This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello, and welcome to the show. Other than your salary, the most important element in your financial life is probably your thrift savings plan account. Just before 2023 expired, for an update, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman caught up with the TSP's Director of External Affairs, Kim Weaver. We have seen a lot of roll-ins this year. We've hit some records months where we have received, as I said, record-setting numbers of roll-ins. That's been a real trend. And then we've also seen um, or an increase in the number of loans that people are taking. And there, we don't know, right, because people can take loans and they don't have to tell us why. It's their money. But uh, we we assume that part of it is due to the fact that now um, with the new record keeper, you can take two general purpose loans. And then we also assume that there are other factors, uh, you know, driving people to take loans. So those, I think, have been the two notable trends this year. Um, you know, we are almost uh, at uh, 7 million participants and about uh, 1.3 million of those are BRS, Uniform Services. So, you know, the population mix is changing of our participants. Quickly also, what are the numbers for the mutual fund window? Is that something you've seen uh, taking up at all? We have about 4,100 participants who have invested in the mutual fund window. Um, and it increases by a handful each week. But yeah, we've seen a steady rise um, as as we, I think, have talked before, we never expected it to be uh, something that every participant used in, in private sector plans that offer mutual fund windows. It's about a one to two percent in take up rate of participants. And but that's a gradual thing, right? It's not on day one. You've got two percent of your participants in the mutual fund window. So we anticipate that it'll continue to grow as people um, decide whether or not they want to diversify their investments beyond the core funds and the TSP. Right. And, you know, speaking of that, I know that's just one of many big changes that the TSP and the board has uh, been working on recently. Maybe can you give a couple other examples of what you think were some of the um, highlights or big things that changed for TSP participants throughout this past year? So this this past year, we have made changes in response to participant requests, participant interest. Um, I think one of the, the big ones was that people can now go online to make changes to their um, installment payments. You can get monthly payments, quarterly payments, annual payments. When the new record keeper went online in June of 2022, you could only make changes by calling the thrift line. Now you can log into your TSP My account and you can make that change online, which is just ease of use for participants. Um, We've redesigned the My Account page to make it easier to navigate, again, in response to participant feedback. Um, And we also added in a loan tracker. For those who are um, taking a loan, there's now a little button that in your My Account, 
that'll show you, um, you know, your application's been received, uh, you know, if you need spousal consent, whether that's been received. So it gives you a sense of where the loan is and how it's moving along. I think those are the three big ones that I would say over the past year have have um, improved participant satisfaction overall. You know, I'm curious because I know that back in June 2022, the initial rollout of that uh, the Converge update and the the transition to the new record keeper uh, was a little bit difficult. Have you seen at this point? I know obviously a lot of those issues have uh, gone away or subsided, but have you? What have you seen in terms of the response from uh, participants? Are you know based on I guess the satisfaction survey? Do they seem like to enjoy the new features and uh, this idea of having a more self-service model for the TSP? Yeah, the the participant satisfaction rate is now about 91%. Um, And our record keeper, when you do a transaction, um, you get a questionnaire. And it's, I think, five or six questions that ask about that specific transaction. Were you pleased with how that went? And then ask other more general questions. So um, it's not every time you do a transaction, but it's it's within, like if you do two transactions in 30 days, you might not get the second survey. But anyhow, we're constantly getting thousands of those a day um, as people do transactions. And so the record keeper evaluates those and makes changes. And they may be as, as small as changing what a call center rep can see on their screen, but it makes it easier to service the participant. And so um, those are the kinds of things that we're responding to and monitoring. As you know, we do our annual participant survey, but that's sort of a snapshot in time, right? You take people's opinion at that time. um, And then it's we augment that with the the real-time feedback that we get from our participants. You know, speaking of that, speaking of the feedback, is there anything else coming up in 2024 that where um, participants are going to see changes or any plans in the works for um, what participants should be looking out for next year? We are going to be rolling out a um, withdrawal tracker, but I don't have a time frame for that. It'll be sometime in 2024 coming to a theater near you, but I don't have um, a time frame yet. And one other big change I know is coming just as a reminder for our listeners is uh, the iFund is changing its uh, benchmark index. Can you explain a little bit more just as a refresher, you know, why that change was made and uh, when that's all going to be taking place? So, yes, Drew, you're right. Um, The board in November uh, voted to change the uh, iFund index, except for the G Fund, which is invested in Treasury Securities, all of our funds track an index. The C fund tracks the S&P 500, right? And currently the I fund tracks the MSCI EFA, which stands for Europe, Australia, Asia, and Far East. Not easy to say. And that provides exposure to 21 developed countries, which represents about 55% of non-US markets capitalization. We are moving to, and this is an extremely long title, and I apologize in advance, we are moving to the MSCI All Country World 
ex-USA, ex-China, ex-Hong Kong investable market index. And what that'll do is we will now have um, exposure to roughly 5,600 uh, large, mid, and small cap uh, stocks in both developed countries and emerging markets. And that represents about 90% of the non-U.S. market capitalization. So what it does is it improves diversification um, and it enhances return without meaningfully um, increasing risk. Uh, and that transition will occur over a period of time in 2024. And I know one other thing that's coming in 2024, I believe there may be a couple more changes. It's over a longer course of time, but changes from the Secure 2.0 Act. Is there anything specific to 2024 that participants should have in mind? Well, Secure 2.0 did say that for um, participants, people in general who have to take RMDs, um, they will no longer have to take RMDs from any Roth accounts. So we have about 7,000 participants who have to take RMDs in 2024, and we've notified them that their RMD will now be drawn solely from their traditional balance. So if their entire account is Roth, they will have no RMD. If they have a mix of Roth and traditional, the um, RMD will come solely from the traditional. The other change for 2024 is that the deferral rate has gone up, the elective deferral rate has gone up to 23,000. Um, and the catch-up limit, these are set by the IRS, the catch-up limit is unchanged at um, 7,500. So if you are 50 and above, you can, and if you have the extra cash, you can contribute up to $30,500 to the TSP. There's a lot of different things uh, to keep in mind, but one other area that we haven't touched yet is uh, Congress. Is there anything that you've been tracking in terms of legislation most recently that might impact the TSP? So the the um, the one uh, provision that's in the Financial Services and General Government Appropriations Bill uh, would say that there could be no companies in our mutual fund window if they make decisions based on environmental, social, or governance factors, we have no ability to police that because, first of all, what is what what factors does that mean? If if an insurance company stops insuring in Florida, for example, is that environmental or is that just sensible business given past losses? So, um, first of all, just that criteria is so undefined. But separately, we have no insight into the 4,600 mutual funds. So that would be an extreme problem and could very well lead to us having to terminate the mutual fund window. Right. I remember some discussion about this uh, earlier this year as well. But uh, just to clarify, is that just in the House version of the bill? It's just in the House version of the bill. The Senate bill does not have that. That's Kim Weaver, Director of External Affairs for the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. We'll take a short break, and when we return, what exactly the latest Federal Employee Viewpoint scores are saying. You're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin.
Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. The Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey scores came out just before Christmas, and results in general seem to be pointed in the right direction. For early analysis, I spoke to the partner and director of government and public affairs at Shaw, Bransford & Roth, Jason Briefel. So the big picture is a good one. The scores are trending upward a little bit, but in a noticeable way after a two-year kind of dip coming out of the heavy, heavy 2020 year of the pandemic. So in the framing of OPM, who issued this report, and in my read of it, you know, in the big picture, that's a good sign. We're going up. So the sense of engagement and the sense that on employees' part that leaders actually lead and so on, those scores are up a tick. Yes. And I think that it's important to parse those out, right? You know, engagement is up a point overall to 72. And in the leader's lead, there's some indices that break that down. Is that the political leaders or the leaders on high? Is that your direct supervisor? And one of the great things about this report is it shows those over time. And and I was happy to see, and I think it's notable that the supervisor score, you know, has been about 80% consistently across time. And as we know, your frontline supervisor, that's where the rubber meets the road with the workforce. Right. That'll make you leave or stay much more readily than almost anything else going on. Absolutely. But I juxtapose that to the leader's lead category where, you know, those can be perceived and they are historically, this is a question in the survey where it's unclear. Are they talking about the secretary in the front office or the SESers nearby the front office, but still maybe the career folks? Those scores are about 20 points lower. You know, they went up two points to 61, but there's a big difference there. And I think that that's important area for agencies to keep in investing in, paying attention to. The political leadership and how it is perceived. Unclear if it's political or career, but it's those higher level leaders. What's the tone that they're setting in the organization? You know, what leadership values are they articulating and guiding the workforce, hopefully, with? It's really hard to attribute a given factor to the scores. I mean, you can say, well, they're getting a 5.2% pay raise, but that wasn't extant at the time the survey was taken. Right. And it's important to realize when the survey was taken in the spring of this year. This is when agencies were getting increased that they were going to be pushed to come back into the office a little bit more on the the eve of an OMB memo focused on organizational health and performance. But it was a government-wide census, so they sent it to everybody, and 39% of the workforce responded. So decent, not great, but a decent population. And that was something that I found interesting, Tom, looking at the data here. The people who responded to the survey tend to be higher graded and older than your average federal workforce. So as I look at the data, I think it's important to realize that we're undersampled, we're underrepresenting the Gen Y and the Gen Z population, and that's where our gap is in the workforce. And they have different attitudes toward work, different attitudes toward supervision, you might even say. Yeah. Which leads to the question about whether people perceive that their agency leadership will do anything with the scores they get, agency by agency. So across the board, that one is not really good. That's one of the very lowest scores in the survey and the government-wide data. This is question 47. Only 48% of respondents think that the survey will be used to make their agency a better place to work. So again, you have this disconnect. If you're going to survey your workforce about this stuff, you have got to put it into action and show them fast that you're doing something about this. And you know, I've been talking and doing stuff around this for 11 years now. And that theme has been the constant theme. And hopefully agencies are getting better at that. And they really have no excuse if they're not because OPM is getting much better at putting this data in their hands faster. 
Sure, it's like grandma asking if you're hungry, and you say yes, but she doesn't have anything to feed you. So it was just a matter of curiosity. That doesn't sit too well with people. Right. And again, I think the data is there. I think that as we go forward into the future, it's wonderful to have the dashboard that OPM presents where you can dig in and into the data and then look what's going on there, what's going on at my agency, what's going on at similar agencies. And hopefully we get to a place in the future in the federal government where this isn't a once a year Christmas present from OPM. You know, It's more of a normal course of business. We're using this data to manage our workforce all the time. We're speaking with Jason Briefel. He's a partner and director of government and public affairs at the law firm Shaw, Bransford & Roth. And people love to see which agencies are doing great, which ones are doing terrible. And there was a bad slippage in one very large agency, wasn't there? There was. You know, the Social Security Administration continues its fallout. You know, this is a combination of, I think, a lot of factors. Their workload, the nature of their work, how far they are able to get in modernization initiatives there. And then they've had an acting leader for, you know, most of the Obama administration, most of this administration, obviously. And they didn't like the leader they had during the Trump administration, rightly or wrongly. Did not like the commissioner that was in from the Trump administration and somewhat controversially fired that official. But I guess good news coming. The Senate finally confirmed Martin O'Malley to lead that agency. And I know he knows that he has a full plate to tackle, but uh, has experience as an, as an operator and administrator that hopefully can help focus on the critical you know, needs and the sure. workforce needs of that agency. Former Maryland governor. And you know, at the tiny agencies, I think the Chemical Safety Board shot up 23%. There's only a few people at that agency. But we see this year after year, sometimes some tiny, obscure agency, the Marine Mammal Commission, did really well a couple of years ago, simply because of sometimes new leadership. So I don't know what happened there, but I definitely saw that Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board, something along those lines. I'm sorry to folks who work there if I butchered your agency title. And I think you're right, Tom. Stuff can happen fast. You can drop out the bottom. You can rise to the top. And I think that that is a positive lesson for agencies listening out there. You know, the scores are not your destiny. The scores are giving you information about what's happening so you can go to where you want to go. And hopefully they're used as a tool for improvement. And again, as I read into these, I think this should always be the start of the conversation, not the end of the conversation. Now, the survey itself was a little bit different. They're always tweaking it, and there are some new questions, and it's hard to be comparable sometimes from one year to the other. What did you find this year? So... I think that it's good that you have these core set of questions, but that OPM is also looking all the time, what are trends, what are key areas that we need to hone in on? And they may do that for various reasons. So obviously, there's a lot of focus around telework, remote work, things like that. So OPM tightened up the phrasing, apparently, that they used in some of their questions so we could parse, are we talking about telework here? Are we talking about a remote worker? And so that helps get us more granular data about what's happening with those people. And something that I think is really interesting and often gets lost in the debate about federal telework, but it's clear as day in the survey, in 2022, 20% of people in this year, 21% of folks said that they don't telework at all. These are law enforcement people, people at the border, people in uh, security, other types of security roles, uh, maybe on a military base. So it's really important to remember that... You know, there's different populations of employees who have different experiences. You know, I look at that against HHS had a great participation rate. Well, other than the folks in a lab, 
I'm going to guess that most HHS employees are at their desk all the time, or a desk somewhere. And I think that that's very different than, say, a Border Patrol or uh, a Bureau of Prisons officer who might not even have a computer. They might just have an agency email account that they have to get to periodically, but that's not really part of the core of their job. Right. A lot of variables depending on the job. And I would say, too, if scores are up in general and the level of telework that was engendered by the pandemic has not changed that much, even though there's all this push, as you say, to get people back. But I think most agencies have settled at the most three days a week back in the office and scores are going up. That means that some level of widespread and regularized telework might be good for the workforce. Well, I'm yeah, making a correlation so. here, but you know this is settled in now. Yeah, I think it's settled in. I think you know if you look nationally at what's going on in this space, about a 50% is the benchmark that in professional organizations we're heading to. And you think about it, real estate's expensive. If you're not using it all, you can shed it, and then you can invest in training and development of your workforce, which is another one of those areas that the survey added some new questions around in 2022, and we're starting to see data in. And it was interesting that that was another one of those where it ranked on the lower side of agencies getting the training investment that they need to successfully do their job. Right. So signal to agencies, we know you always cut back on training and development, but it's never a good idea. No, I don't think so. And and I think in an area where we're constantly confronting new technologies to enable a learning mindset, uh, workforce resiliency. Uh, again, you know, some some I'm not sure if these are new questions or if they just tagged them to the OMB memo, but around organizational health and performance, I found it really interesting that some uh, measures around resilience, innovation, and customer responsiveness were highlighted. But you see a dichotomy here. And, you know, I often see these dichotomies in this data. You look at some of the resilience measures uh, for change management. Our employees approaching change and is management helping them approach change receive pretty low scores, 57% and 54%. Whereas if you ask employees, you know, are they or their managers engendering an innovation mindset, the scores were better, you know, between 66 and 58%. So you're always like, what exactly is going on there? And I think if you look at it in the grand scheme of the survey, it's not really helpful. This is where digging into your particular agency or office is really helpful. And then and that comes back to the difference between those supervisors and those leaders lead people, political leaders or your executives. Are we helping people put the tools on the deck to really do what they need to do? All right. So to agency managers and leaders then look at this as an assignment and not as a report card alone. Absolutely, Tom. Jason Briefel, partner and director of government and public affairs at Shaw, Brantford & Roth. He's also director of policy and legislative affairs for the Senior Executives Association. And that's it for this week's FedLife. We'll return next week with more of what you need to know for your financial and professional life. Until then, I'm Tom Temin. Thanks for listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.